This episode is Privacy Law Reform with Anna Johnson. Hi, this is Brett Farrell. Thanks for joining the Westbright Law Cast. We're all about digital media and technology law, which moves faster than we can get podcasts out. So know that when an episode drops, something interesting has happened in digital media and technology law. Subscribe and each episode will find its way to you. I'm talking with Anna Johnson about privacy law reform. We focus on the October 2021 Privacy Act discussion paper and online privacy bill. Anna is the founder and principal at Salinger Privacy and is one of Australia's most respected experts in privacy law and practice. She is also the former Deputy Privacy Commissioner for New South Wales. If you want to talk about what any of this means for your business, get in touch with Anna or me, Brett, at Westbright Law. This podcast is best enjoyed with a coffee or whatever your choice. Anna's is an English breakfast tea, mine's a piccolo. Anna, thank you so much for joining me. We have got a lot of ground to cover today with the Privacy Act Reform discussion paper and the online privacy bill. So maybe that would be a great place just to start with some context of how we ended up where we are. Yeah, sure. So look, the Privacy Act has been around since the late 80s applying to government. It was extended to the private sector in 2000 or early the early 2000s. And we've had a few reviews um, kicking around since then, but the main stimulus for this current review process is the ACCC's Digital Platforms Inquiry. So late 2019, the ACCC issued its final report into a really in-depth look at various practices of big tech they started with a focus on Facebook and Google, but there were lots of different sort of um, strands to it. And they've also looked at um, other sort of business practices like customer loyalty schemes, each of which have a lot of crossover with privacy regulations. So obviously the ACCC is coming from a consumer protection and trade practices, you know, monopoly markets, that kind of perspective. But to the extent that all these big technology companies and technology-based services run off personal information and monetize personal information, there's also a huge crossover with privacy issues. So the ACCC's Digital Platforms Inquiry final report recommended to the Australian government that they review and update the Privacy Act. So there are a few different topics that the ACCC um, honed in on, in particular, including the definition of personal information and what it means to get someone's valid consent and when consent should be needed. Um, but they also recommended a wide-scale review of the Privacy Act was needed for a whole bunch of other, or across a bunch of other topics as well. So, so that's how we've where we're at now. So the government since then. Um, late 2020 released an issues paper called for submissions. They got something like 200 submissions and they've been waiting through those. And, and this next step is this discussion paper, which has some more concrete proposals for reform, but still also has some topics where they ask further questions and ask for a further round of consultation without yet landing on a, a preferred position of the government. Not a lot of people may appreciate that the ACCC, a competition regulator, is really the main advocate for privacy reform. Um, is, is that usual in other markets around the world? There's certainly the last few years seen a lot of cooperation between consumer protection, um, so antitrust and, and privacy regulators 
around the world. But I don't think anyone's had quite the same impact. Um, other any other regulators, I, ha I haven't seen the same kind of impact as the ACCC has had here. I know that their digital platforms inquiry was watched closely around the world. It was quite um, quite a novel approach for a competition regulator to look at big te tech companies in the kind of depth and breadth of coverage that the ACCC did. Yeah. So why don't we start with the basics? Why don't we just look at some of the topics in the discussion paper and then we'll move on to the online privacy bill. But let's just start perhaps with the, the first principles, personal information. So it seems that the government is proposing a, a an amendment to personal information and how we think about what it is included. Um, what are your thoughts on the current proposals to amend the definition? I believe the proposals to amend the definition are heading in the right direction. I would personally like to see them go a little bit further, but absolutely heading in the right direction and trying to bring Australian privacy law closer in line with the GDPR, which is a European privacy law, generally seen as setting a bit of a global benchmark. It's it's not the only game in town, but it is seen as, as the kind of benchmark we want to measure up to. Um, so just to explain why this definition matters so much, it's, it's a threshold legal definition. So data that is considered, that meets the definition of personal information is in scope for regulation, meaning organisations have a whole bunch of privacy obligations that hang off it and individuals have privacy rights that hang off this definition. So to the extent that some practices, some organisations might have been arguing in the past or to date that what they're doing does not involve personal information because the data doesn't meet this definition and therefore their privacy obligations don't apply. Shifting the definition changes the whole nature of that kind of debate. It's, it's very much intended, this reform, this proposed reform is intended to bring um, I guess widen the net for the kinds of practices that should be within scope for privacy regulation, which is not to mean that these practices will now be prohibited, but simply that organisations need to comply with the privacy principles when they are handling this kind of data. It's, it's really fascinating to me, this particular definition, this question, because it's probably the most asked question I get as a lawyer, What's is, is X, Y and Z personal information. Uh, and you know, the classic lawyer answer, well, it depends. Um, so with this broadening, do you think it's going to help businesses be able to understand what, first of all, what personal information is, particularly in the technological and data-driven businesses where, where there are things which are clearly personal information and things which, data, which may, may be in some contexts, but in other contexts, maybe not. And do you think that's going to help business and people who use personal information a lot to, to understand that a bit better? I think it will. And for the better, um, obviously, I think any kind of broadening of the scope is a good outcome in terms of better privacy protection for individuals. But I think it actually helps with organisations at least understand their compliance obligations as well. To my mind, half the journey for an organisation in complying with their legal obligations is understanding what they're supposed to be doing in the first place. So having a definition that's a lot clearer, even if it means that some 
practices might have, you know, been borderline in the past will now clearly be within scope for the regulation. At least the clarity, I think, will be useful for plenty of organisations who've, who've struggled with this in the past. Yeah, yeah. And that leads into the next idea of once we can figure out what personal information is and what we hold for, there's this new idea or recasting the idea of the fair and reasonable use of the personal information, which which maybe, you know, if that's one of the recommendations that's ultimately implemented, may really constrain a, a lot of data use, certainly in the personal information space. Exactly. I think this, this idea of having a fair and reasonable test, which will work a bit like a, you know, a filter that sits before anything else you can, you can make decisions about you know, whether you're going to collect, use or disclose personal information, it's got to pass through this fair and reasonable filter. If it can't make it through that filter, you shouldn't be doing it. That's basically going to be the, the effect of this new test. So it's all about kind of cracking down on practices that might be considered unfair or exploitative. So a lot of focus, for example, has been around, um, you know, monetizing data about children or other vulnerable people, um, if, so if something can't get through this fair and reasonable filter, this proposal suggests that it shouldn't be happening at all. So, um, so it's not it's not about um, using the definition of personal information to filter things out. It's, it's basically saying let's let's as I said broaden out that net, widen the scope for what's supposed to be regulated. But then we're we're going to say things need to pass this fair and reasonable test. And as long as you can pass that fair and reasonable test, then then you kind of move on to what the, the rest of the rules say in practice. Some would say we already have this in law at the moment with the way in which we can only use personal information for a legitimate business purpose or for a business purpose. Um, and then, you know, the recent 7-Eleven determination from the commissioner, which causes business to now think about the balancing act of what they're collecting versus business benefits and a proportionality test. So is is fair and reasonable already part of the privacy landscape or do you really see these proposals as extending or clarifying? I think it both clarifies and extends. So there are already, so if we look at the law as it is as it you know is in place today, there are some bits that talk about um, fairness or reasonableness or necessity or proportionality, but it doesn't cover the full gamut of collection use and disclosure. So this proposal is is a bit more of a blanket approach saying no matter what aspect of collection use or disclosure you're looking at, it's got to pass this fair and reasonable test. At the moment, if you just look at um, collection practices, the point at which an organisation is collecting personal information at the moment, uh, the rules include that you cannot use an an unfair means or mechanism, but it doesn't actually have a fairness test about your purpose for collection or and there's no fairness test on how you subsequently um, use that information. So you've just got to avoid being uh, sort of unfair um, or kind of covert in the way that you collect information. But as long as at the moment, the law basically says, as long as you tell people what you're going to collect their information for and you've put them on notice, there's not there, there, there's no further test about um, kind of fairness or reasonableness. You just, you, 
there's other tests it needs to be related to your primary purpose but the privacy commissioner has said basically an, a company can set itself up to be deliberately exploitative about the way it collects people's data um, and as long as it tells people up front it's going to do that at the moment the law won't stop it and the point is that this new test will stop the more um, the most kind of egregious examples of um, you know that, that could result in harm to individuals so you know let's say in, in an online sort of behavioural advertising sense, for example, if you're an advertiser and you've, you've pigeon-told someone as having um, bipolar disorder, for example, you know, it, you, you, I would consider, at least, um, others may disagree, but I would consider it unfair to deliberately target someone with bipolar disorder with a gambling ad for example, to take, take advantage of them, particularly if they're in a, um, you know, a manic state, which makes them particularly vulnerable. Yeah. You just touched on uh, behavioural advertising, and that was also not only one of the bigger topics which the reforms are addressing, the idea of direct marketing, profiling, targeted ads, but it's also, I guess, probably one of the more common and well-known use cases for personal information. You know, aside from collecting some information to provide a service, the big use case is always around the idea of analytics, insights, direct marketing, profiling. So let's just let's just maybe talk about the the the, the problem child that is APP seven, and what what are the reforms suggesting first of all about APP seven? So the proposal is to abolish it. So this is, you know, one of the 13 APPs, Australian Privacy Principles. This one's just about direct marketing. It was um, only introduced relatively recently um, from memory in about in the 2014 reforms. And the proposal is now to get rid of it again and instead subject direct marketing to more or less the same rules as everything else. So that fair and reasonable test to start with rules about, um, you know, better rules about explaining to people why you're collecting, if you need someone's consent to collect or use or disclose their information. So at the moment, APP7 sets up special rules if you're going to use or disclose information for a direct marketing purpose and and requires an opt-out or unsubscribe option in each marketing message. But APP7 is itself, um, uh, if it's complex because there's an interrelationship between APP7 and the SPAM Act and the Do Not Call Register Act. So it doesn't even, APP7 only applies when the other two acts don't already apply. So we've already got regulation of, of direct marketing depending on which channel the, the marketing is, is um, traveling through, if you like. And channel, channels are the really interesting one. And, I, I, you know, I guess in the early days of email emerging and, and text message spam, it made, made sense to perhaps deal with those as individual use cases. But w- what's really fascinating now is that the, the, the channel is, well, everywhere. It's almost irrelevant how a message is sent. And what it's really, I think, I'm seeing in the market with folks is trying to understand what is... A direct market ad or a campaign yeah. versus traditional advertising and there seems to be depending on how you do it seems to be the answer to the question yeah absolutely so and, and we know that the 
um, OAIC, so the privacy regulator has treated online behavioural advertising as direct marketing for the purposes of APP7. And so, the, you know, the difference in the online world is if I'm reading a newspaper story about, uh, you know, a travel story about Thailand, um, if I then see an ad on that page promoting airfares to Thailand, that's uh, that may have been placed there through contextual advertising, meaning the advertiser has said, I want to I want to sell my flights to Thailand or my package holidays to Thailand. Please put ads on the pages of newspaper stories that are that are about you know holidays in Thailand. Or has that ad actually been targeted to me because someone somewhere has built up a, a profile of me as an individual person looking at stories on the internet um, who the uh, the you know Google or Facebook has profiled me as saying this is someone who's interested in holidays at the moment. Yeah, I think that's going to be a really interesting thing for people who conduct marketing campaigns to think about because the idea is even in the gamut of just possibilities for marketing to people online, identified or not, there are so many different nuances in the way audiences are constructed, whether you're looking at some kind of um, segment or cohort, which may have at some point been built from personal information or not, versus absolute custom audiences. I want to send my message on privacy law to Anna, and I want to make sure it hits her. So I think it's going to be an interesting time if the laws and the reforms aren't clear and really understand the nuances about how direct marketing and advertising actually takes place. It could end up in a bit more confusion there, I think, even in trying to solve it by removing APP7. Yeah, and I, the discussion paper, to be honest, doesn't um, – it doesn't do a great job of explaining what the end result will look like. So it sort of says we're going to abolish APP7, but we're still covering – the sort of the privacy issues that come up in relation to direct marketing in all these other proposals. So there's a bunch of cross references. So, you know, go see proposal number this, this one, and also see this other proposal. So it, it's almost like we need to see the, the bill or the, you know, the model law that comes out of it to make a lot of sense out of what's proposed at, at the moment. With your crystal ball though, do you think there'll also be some consolidation in in regulators, do you think perhaps um, the ACMA might have some of its responsibilities moved into the OAIC? Oh, I don't know. That's a really good question. I haven't heard any chatter about um, changing regulators of the Spam Act or the Do Not Call Register Act. Um, but I mean, that, in a certain sense, that makes sense. You could you could potentially abolish both the other acts actually, and just have the whole thing regulated in in the Privacy Act. Yeah, fair and reasonable. Now, speaking speaking of the Privacy Act, everyone's favourite topic, consent. Let me ask, is it time to abolish consent? I don't think we can abolish consent outright, but I do want to see, and hopefully I think this, this discussion paper is about achieving, a reduction in the reliance on consent as a means for organisations to justify their information handling practices, whether that's collect collection use or disclosure, 
to my mind, consent should almost be the last resort rather than the first resort. If you are doing a completely normal routine business activity that your customers would expect and it passes the fair and reasonable test, why should anyone be bothered um, with yet another pop-up or a consent notice or a you have to tick a box here or you have to you know, click I agree there? People absolutely have consent fatigue and as a result of having consent fatigue um, and as a result of, of um, what's known as dark patterns, so the design of websites to, to encourage people to click on the I agree button, it's uh, um, both those sort of design practices and business practices and, and we as humans, as individual consumers or as citizens, we've just become kind of inured to just, yes, I'll, take, I'll tick that box that says I agree. I can't be bothered reading the terms and conditions. I'll just tick the box because I want to get on and download this app or buy this product or receive this service, which which really devalues our own um, sense of agency over, you know, control over our lives and what we want to do. I would like to see consent used much more rarely, but when it is used, therefore people sit up and take notice and really think, oh, okay, if they're asking for my permission, it's because they're they want to do something that they're not allowed to do otherwise, unless I say yes. And that means it must be something unusual, not routine, not standard business practice. So, I, you know, I would like to see consent reserved for those, um, the more unusual things, not, not the routine business practices that we should, that we should expect. And we as consumers and as citizens, I feel like we shouldn't be constantly facing the burden of having to be the ones to agree to something if the law says, well, it should that, that practice shouldn't be happening if it hasn't already passed the fair and reasonable test to start with. So the you know, we need a bit more of an obligation on organizations through the law to be doing the right thing so that we as consumers don't have to make a decision. Oh, is what they're asking me to do, is that fair and reasonable or not? Let's make the law, you know, force the organisations to pass that test first. It's one of the happy accidents of the GDPR, I think, is that it's pushed consent down to the list of preferences almost to the last one you'd want to pick. Um, so I think perhaps if you're right about how the fair and reasonable test might get rolled out, um, it, it may do a lot to push consent into that circumstance where it is. Absolutely. So, you know, when our clients are, um, you know, looking at, well, how, how we want to do X, how can we do that? I'm almost always, out, outside that kind of research context, I'm almost always advising them, don't, you, don't rely on consent. If you've got any other legal mechanism to let you do this activity, don't rely on consent. Because this, the problem with consent is the second someone says, no, I don't consent, they're hamstrung. They can't do their activity. And if and if consent's the only basis on which they can operate and they're worried about people saying no, it usually suggests that what they're doing is not fair and reasonable in the first place. They're trying to do something a bit dodgy. Uh, now, let's just change gears to another topic, which I think is going to be relevant to almost everyone in Australia who runs a business and employs people. What do you think is going to happen with the employment exemption? Are we about to lose it? Oh, I don't know. This is this is one where the Attorney General's Department, so this is the department who's put out this discussion paper, they've not made a kind of concrete proposal 
yet. So there's four major carve-outs to the Privacy Act at the moment. Small business, media in the course of journalism, political parties and employee records. All four of them are quite contentious. The fact that we have these four carve-outs is one of the major reasons why Australia has not to date been recognised as having a level of privacy law considered adequate to European standards. And without what's called an adequacy decision from the European Commission, it really holds up trade in personal information between the EU countries and Australia. So getting bringing the Australian Privacy Act up to sort of European standards is actually a major driver for an objective of this piece of reform. So knowing that those four carve-outs that already exist, that currently exist in the Privacy Act, are one of the big hurdles, one, one of the major reasons the European Commission in the past refused to give Australia this adequacy ruling. Why they've not yet come out firmly in this discussion paper and said, yeah, we're abolishing all four is a little bit beyond me, except uh, other than to say, well, I guess for political reasons, it's going to be, there's going to be people who are unhappy to lose these exemptions. And so maybe they're just, um, that's why they're, they're asking extra questions, calling for an extra round of, of consultation um, before coming to a final position on exactly what's going to happen with with these four different exemptions. Well, well, happily in the business world, I'm seeing more people just comply with privacy obligations for their employees, uh, if only because the practicalities of the exemption perhaps aren't as valuable or as helpful as you might think. Yes, and 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 your ability to, as an organisation, to say, oh, employee records are siloed over here and we can treat them completely differently. Your ability to silo employee records in that way has already been diminished over... So since this, you know, since the law was extended to the private sector, but with this carve-out included, um, it's been effectively watered down. Not that the exemption's been watered down, but the effectiveness of it has been watered down because of things like the introduction of the notifiable data breach scheme, which basically says if you have a data breach, which is loss, unauthorised use, unauthorised disclosure of personal information or of tax file numbers, you have to do certain things. And tax file numbers are sitting there in your employee records. You've got tax file numbers on all your employees. So they've already had to suddenly kind of go, oh, right. So because we've got holding tax file numbers in those employee records, we actually do need to worry about data security and our, you know, who has access to these things and how we're storing them and all the rest, which means, well, you may as well therefore apply all of your privacy obligations to the employee records, just like your customer records. If for no other reason other than it's just a great way to treat people. Well, yes, yeah, and, and and that's the other thing. Of course, your employees probably expect to be treated with the same kind of um, level of care and diligence as, as you treat your customers. Now, with the online privacy bill, regulating big tech in a form of a bill, not a discussion paper, not an issues paper, straight to a bill, what do you think government's trying to signal to that sector that handles a lot of consumer personal information. I think they're signalling that they're not afraid anymore to take them on. It's, um, I think the timing of this, again, these have been flagged for some time. So the idea of having a code about social media was flagged by the ACCC 
um, you know, more than two years ago. So this has been in the works for some time. But, um, you know, I guess the extent to which particular big tech companies, public sentiment has shifted, understanding of the nature of, of the potential harms that social media can do has shifted. And that means that I think there's even more political will now than there was two years ago to at least be seen to be doing something. Whether or not this bill achieves doing something is another matter. It may just be about the optics. I wonder if it's a bit more than just the optics, given that they're structuring it in terms of social media, big tech players, data users, and you know, to me, that come the, the credit reference agencies come to mind uh, as, a, as a big data user. And, and query with the way the, the actual draft bill is written, whether or not it might actually sweep in um, some financial services apps that go a bit beyond pure payment facilities and offer all sorts of other services or products online that you know use more uh, that use data above the thresholds in the draft bill. So perhaps this might be sweeping up a bit more than we think. Yeah, absolutely. And you know, experience from the US um, shows that uh, all we'll do is end up in arguments about what it means to trade in personal information. You know, organisations will will try to argue that they're not covered by this code, so they say, "Oh, we're not selling it." Um, so therefore, we're not trading in it, or we, you know, we'll have arguments about well, what does it mean to enable online social interaction? So you've mentioned, um, you know, online banking platforms or fintech services, for example. I can also imagine this could potentially accidentally cover um, educational apps, so or, or platforms. So long as they've got more than 2.5 million users in Australia, if they enable online social interaction. Are they going to be caught by this? And was that really the intention? Now, with all the reforms taking place in privacy with the online service providers, is there anything else, Anna, that you think we should be aware of? This online privacy bill is uh, proposing to introduce age verification for users of these big online platforms and social media companies require parental consent for kids under 16 to use social media. Uh, we've also, you know, there's um, sort of completely separate processes to reform defamation law. Should platforms be treated like publishers and be liable for um, comments made on the platforms by individual users? There's a huge amount of kind of legislative and policy activity taking place so that, you know, the Privacy Act is not the only kind of game in town at the moment. Now, Anna, in these proposals in the for the Privacy Act reform, uh, wh where are we looking at with enforcement measures? Uh, any increase in powers or remedies available? Yes, yeah, so there's there's quite a lot happening here. So, and some of, and this is split between the discussion paper on reform of the Privacy Act and the online privacy bill. The online privacy bill includes a big jump in civil penalties that the OAIC can levy. So at the moment, it's a $2.1 million fine. And the proposal is to bump that up to $10 million or um, an account of profits. So if you've, if you've profited from breaching privacy, you know, of your customers or whoever, um, an account of profits, meaning you have to pay back three times the sum of the money that you earned from doing the 
the thing that breached someone's privacy or te- or if you can't figure out that number 10% of your turnover ouch that's that's going to hurt some companies if they get that wrong yeah so this is um so this though that kind of figure brings the privacy act into line with the australian consumer law and it also um, is much closer to, again, the GDPR. So the, the kind of penalties we see in the GDPR. So again, the GDPR has that kind of um, mechanism where it's either, uh, you know, 20 million euros, for example, or 4% of global turnover. So 20 million euros would send, you know, lots of businesses broke, but, uh, you know, would not touch the sides of, of Facebook and Google. So that's why they've got a percentage of turnover. And, and, and the figure is whichever is the, is the highest out of those figures is, is the maximum penalty for a, a breach. So those, that increase in the penalties, um, I don't think anyone should be surprised by those. They've been telegraphed for quite some time by the government, which is why they're actually in a bill rather than the discussion paper that will lead to another bill sometime in the future. So why they're, they're putting that on the table of parliament sooner rather than later. But then the discussion paper um, on the broader reforms of the Privacy Act raises a bunch of other things around enforcement, remedies, penalties. So whether or not we have, um, whether or not they introduce a direct right of action is one thing. So at the moment, if you have a complaint against an organisation, you, you make your complaint to the organisation. If you're not satisfied with how they resolve it, then you can go to the OAIC. And it's very hard to then get from the OAIC to a court. There is a proposal to make that a bit more straightforward, but I don't think the proposal quite goes far enough. Um, there's also a proposal for, well, they, they um, haven't yet made the proposal. Again, this is one thing where they've said, oh, here's a few different options give us your thoughts on these different options Um, and that's whether or not we introduce a statutory tort of privacy so that one individual can sue another individual or organization for a breach of privacy beyond just um, if you like non-compliance with the APP so it would be more broadly defined as as privacy rights that are not limited to breaches of the APPs Um, and then and then there's some other kind of things around enforcement, like whether or not industry should be um, pay a levy to help fund for fund the regulator in the same way as um, ASIC, for example, as a corporate regulator is is partly funded. So there's quite a lot happening around the role of the regulator, the powers of the regulator, the funding of the regulator, and whether we, as, as, as individuals who might suffer a privacy breach, whether we even have to go to the regulator or can we go straight to court to sue someone for, um, you know, if we've suffered damages for a serious invasion of privacy. Is there anything that you think these reforms have missed? To my mind, one of the areas that is missed is um, an opportunity to fix up the research exemption. It, it might sound like a bit of a, a niche issue, but a lot of our clients are in government or in, um, if they're in private sector, they're in areas doing lots of research. So sort of medical pharmaceutical areas in particular and health service providers. The research exemptions are uh, too narrowly cast and need 
fixing and I will be saying that in my submission on the discussion paper. I think that there's an opportunity to fix those that has not yet been grappled with. Um, the rest of my, I guess, my concerns with the discussion paper is just where, where there is a proposal, but I don't think it goes far enough, or it might need tweaking. They haven't thought through necessarily the, you know, all the implications. Um, but that's why there's an extra round of, of consultation before we even see a bill. I remember in the late 90s when I met my first privacy lawyer, and my reaction was, gee, I wonder what he's going to do with his day. <laughs> yeah. And I could never have imagined some 20 years later that, that I would get to find out. Anna Johnson, founder and principal of Salinger Privacy, one of Australia's most respected experts in privacy law and practice. Can't believe I got to spend this time talking with you about these reforms. Thanks, Anna, for joining me. Oh, it's such a pleasure, Brett. Thanks for having me. That's it. You can go back to work now. <laughs>